0: Welcome to Lost in the Movies. For the last time, I will be sharing a Twin Peaks cinema kind of pre-episode on the feed of this podcast. It's going to spin off and become its own podcast feed in October. So I've done this four times already, and uh, each time it's been focusing on uh, directors or writers or co-creators who worked on uh, Twin Peaks itself and then I look at a feature film of theirs and draw comparisons between the works, uh, oftentimes in capsules like in this episode. So this is the third one I've done where I've just focused on episode directors and done like four films, by uh, one by each of them. So this rounds off uh, the last of those directors. This episode is going to cover the films After Dark, My Sweet, Codename Emerald, Losing Isaiah, and Matthew Blackheart, Monster Smasher, for. Very different films that you wouldn't really see compiled together, but for the fact that uh, all of their creators were Twin Peaks alums, and uh, it's interesting to draw out, maybe sometimes coincidental, but some sort of Twin Peaks connection there. So that's what we're going to do here. Now before we get to that, just wanted to update everyone on what I've been up to, uh, in this case just for the past week, because now we're doing these podcasts weekly through the end of September, Uh, on my site, lostinthemovies.com, I've continued my Mad Men Season 5 Viewing Diary with Episode 9 Dark Shadows. And on YouTube, I actually released uh, two Twin Peaks mini chapters uh, because there were two anniversaries right around each other. These are uh, sequences from my longer chapter on uh, all of Twin Peaks Season 3. I decided to re release them in smaller, digestible chunks in conjunction with the, uh, mostly with the fourth anniversary of. Uh, Those episodes that aired in 2017. But actually, in this case, I had a different anniversary in mind. I premiered A Darkness in the Desert video essay on season three, part eight, uh, where I look at the New Mexico scenes in part eight because those scenes take place on August, uh, what was it, August 5th, uh, 1956. So this was actually the 50 the 65th anniversary of those fictional events. So that was kind of a fun coincidence there. And then the next day, August 6th, happened to be when part, the anniversary of when uh, part 13 aired. So I put up a chapter on parts nine through 13 of, of season three. And I call that chapter bittersweet passage because it's a sort of a little bit of a quiet, um, maybe a letdown after the heights of part eight, but there's some interesting poignant stuff that happens in that passage of episode. So I enjoyed making that video as well. And then on Vimeo, I put up a chapter of Journey Through Twin Peaks, chapter 32, which is the second part of the David Lynch and Mary Sweeney videos, called uh, uh, con- somewhat confusingly called Dream Souls, because I have a longer video named that too on Vimeo. And this was supposed to be just on YouTube, but YouTube age-restricted it because it has nudity from the film Lost Highway. So, that means if you don't have a YouTube account, you can't view it. Um, If you're, I can't embed the video on site. So, it was very much a nuisance. So, it's still up there on YouTube. And I think most people will be able to see it because I think most of the people watching these videos probably have YouTube accounts and are hopefully over 18. So, they won't have trouble viewing it, but others will. So, I made a little uh, announcement video on YouTube that only shows up if you're on that playlist, like it's an unlisted video. Sorry to get into the weeds of all this, but there there was some technical stuff to deal with this week, so I might as well get it out there. This chapter does also now exist on Vimeo for those who don't have YouTube accounts, and um, you may still have trouble viewing it on Vimeo as well. They have their own restriction rules, but they're a little less um, difficult to, I guess, work around than YouTube is, so... Uh, hopefully, that works for everyone. All the links will be below in the show notes. One more thing to say about the subject of this podcast before I get on to it I make several references to other films by other episode directors, most of those covered in uh, the earlier uh, segments of this Twin Peaks Cinema topic. But I also talk about the show Wise Guy, which I've not released publicly. If you want to hear that, you have to go to my uh, Patreon episode where I originally covered all of these capsules together and in that one I have a long segment on wise guy like I think about a half hour long where I go through this arc this was was a crime show from the early 90s and a writer from Twin Peaks worked on it on an arc that was a direct reference to Twin Peaks like the town is even called Lynchboro in the show so you know, obviously referencing David Lynch there. Uh, and of course, it should have been obvious by now with everything I've been talking about. But if you have not seen Twin Peaks, this episode is probably not for you. Because I will be spoiling uh, Twin Peaks things as I discuss these directors' work on the show and in their film. So that should go without saying. But uh, yeah, this so this little arc on the show, Wise Guy, was fascinated to, to dig into 30 years later. And this long um, sequence on my podcast that I'll, of course, link below with everything else. Uh, discusses that and the funny thing about this is because it took the Twin Peaks pilot so long to get to the air tons of people in the industry had seen it ahead of time and so this wise guy arc was uh, written produced and it made it to the air in March uh, beginning in March of 1990 and Twin Peaks didn't actually premiere until April of 1990 so there was literally a popular TV show already Directly referencing Twin Peaks before any audience had had a chance to see it. It's very interesting how that works. So, now to move on to these four films and discuss each one in turn for several minutes as we uh, draw the connections there. We can do it, Faye. I could take care of you real good. And suddenly I saw you two on the dance floor and it hit me like one of the kids left hooks here. That's what they used to call him, Kid Collins. You don't really know anything about me. No, but I know people. I know what they'll do and I know what they (laughs) won't do. I don't want him talking you into this mess. They're using you for their own criminal purposes. I'd say it'd be good if you never had to worry about money the rest of your life. Maybe I can get some kind of job. (laughs) Don't hurt me, mister. By now, starting around Uli Edel, we've been just talking about directors who've only directed one episode of Twin Peaks. In most of season two, other than Todd Holland, it's just people who directed season one episodes coming back again to direct, or it's one-offs, like uh, Uli Edel, like Diane Keaton, or in this case, like James Foley. Uh, James Foley is probably best known for directing Glengarry Glen Ross. A great film. I didn't really think there was much of a Twin Peaks connection to draw there, and also that's so heavily impacted by David Mamet, that uh, I thought it would be more interesting to look at, After Dark, My Sweet, a noir film that I'd never seen before, quite enjoyed, from uh, 1990. Just this sort of period of neo-noirs in the late 80s, early 90s that, well, I guess never really stopped, but there's sort of distinct eras of neo-noirs, and I think this kind of falls into that uh, that period. Uh, it takes place in a little desert town out near Palm Springs, where an ex-boxer is wandering around and ends up in the orbit of this young woman, femme fatale. Not too young. She's not like, you know, she's probably in her 30s. This guy played by Bruce Dern that she lives with. Bruce Dern is always fantastic, and he's great in this. Rachel Ward is uh, the actress who plays uh, Faye Anderson, who's the femme fatale figure. She's Australian. And he doesn't know whether to trust her or not. She doesn't know whether to trust him or not at times. How intelligent he is, because he comes off as kind of dumb, but he's always thinking and paying attention below the surface. There's also a character played by George Dickerson, who plays Laura Dern's father in Blue Velvet. And he's this smiling, slightly sinister doctor character who's very condescending towards uh, Kid Collins, the main character, and uh, always telling him, like, well, now you sure you want to be doing this? And I think you should come back and stay with me. And there's a weird dynamic there uh, where there's a little bit of a homoerotic overtones. Is there more to this character than just professional or humanitarian concern about Jason Patrick? Who, by the way, I should have mentioned, Jason Patrick is the actor playing the main character. And everybody seems to be out to take advantage of him in one way or another. So he gets embroiled in a kidnapping plot. He ends up turning a lot of it on its head and ends as a noble hero in a way that you might not have seen coming earlier on. He ends up in that place, and through some unusual ways, which are stoic and self-sacrificial. So I won't say more than that. Maybe that's already too much. But there's a lot that happens that you probably won't see coming. The episode that uh, James Foley directed of Twin Peaks is episode 24, which opens with a very noirish uh montage uh, neo-noirish I suppose with its use of color bleary late 80s early 90s filters on the lens where you have Harry Truman spinning his whiskey glass and dreaming of Josie as that great Josie and Truman theme plays and you see images blurry images of her dancing through and he's grieving his loss of her so you have a weary and very mannered character the performance of Harry on uh, of Harry uh, Michael onkeen as Harry Truman in that episode is a little more mannered than usual I don't know if that's just the actor having to deal with more dramatic material than he usually does or if it's how Foley directed him. But it reminds me a lot of how Jason Patrick acts in After Dark, My Sweet. It's a very mannered performance where his way of expressing himself and his pauses and his little bit of a theatricality to it that feels like the theatricality of the character called to mind a a lot of the, uh, the Truman stuff in the episode. So that was interesting. And the character's tormented by this question of loyalty and love with this other woman. You have that here with the Jason Patrick character and the Rachel Ward character, and then, of course, with Josie and Truman. Uh, Josie is already dead when the episode begins, but he's haunted throughout uh, by her, and then another sort of femme fatale character uh, crawls into bed with Truman at the end and, try, and tries to strangle him, so that's interesting. And you also have Cooper stepping in to help Truman, to try and shake him out of his stupor, listen, like, I'm I'm trying to help you out here, much like the Doc character does with kid collins in after dark my sweet, but this cooper's intervention is portrayed i think much more sympathetically than the doctors is there hope i don't but i just might you, you mean you actually tell them about Kelly? yeah the real place calais figured you knew smart guy like you Figured you for an overlord right from the start. Codename Emerald was a TV movie from the mid-80s directed by Jonathan Sanger. Sanger directed episode 26 of Twin Peaks. That was his only episode where uh, the, the heavy metal dude is killed by Windermere, placed in the pond, and uh, they're figuring out a lot of the clues with the mythology and uh, Owl Cave and all of that. This was the last episode... Or the only episode written by Mark Frost in between Leland's death and the uh, the season two finale. So Sanger was a longtime Lynch collaborator. He produced The Elephant Man, as I already mentioned. He produced um, or was involved with uh, Francis. And he also directed one of those episodes of Wise Guys. He's not really, I don't think, well, as, as well-known as a director. I think he's directed a few TV episodes and things like that. This was the closest I could find to theatrical feature film. It was made for TV, but it's like an hour-and-a-half, two-hour feature telling a contained story. And uh, it was quite compelling, um... Particularly for the performances, I think it's sort of a conventional spy story. It's based on uh, the capture of a prisoner who knows about the upcoming D Day invasion location. So they send uh, the character played by Ed Harris, who is kind of weak, who is a dual agent, double agent, who the Germans think is spying on the uh, British and Americans for them, and the British and Americans think is spying on the Germans. For for them. And he is actually working ultimately for the Allies, not the Axis. But they also tell him that maybe he should kill this guy if it turns out that uh, he is too weak. So they want to get him embedded as a prisoner with him in in Germany to find out if he's cracked and if he's going to tell them the invasion of the uh, D-Day of Normandy of the, you know, the right location. So much of the film is spent with Ed Harris and the other character played by Matthew Modine in their cell, talking amongst themselves about connecting, bonding over American things like uh, baseball. I said, I'm sorry, Matt, not Matthew Modine. <laughs> Eric Stoltz is Lieutenant Andy Wheeler, the character, the American prisoner who knows too much, another young 80s star. And then at the end, it becomes sort of more of an escape type film as they try to figure out how to get out of there alive. And Max von Sydow is in it as well. Patrick Stewart is in it as well. He plays a British colonel. A bunch of supporting car- supporting like SS figures. There's there's a there's a lot of interest here in the dynamics on the German side between these sort of more conventional bureaucrat or military types who just want to get the job done, the fanatical ideological SS types, those with more of a conscience who are secretly working for the Americans or the British, and uh, that kind of dynamic plays out. So, what in the world does this have to do? With his episode of Twin Peaks, this seems like it would be one of the more difficult to connect. But actually, I found some more connections here than I did with some of the other stuff. Just starting with the most routine things, like the fact that there's these long scenes of them sorting through files and going through people's information, which they're doing in episode 26 in relation to Windermerell and Project Blue Book. So again, this sort of military, secret military projects and looking into that. That's just the sort of superficial writing that is not really, that wasn't Jonathan Sanger's job as director, but he does end up directing similar scenes in both through that. More fundamentally, there's these long sequences of of tender conversations between uh, vulnerable characters. So you have these weaker, younger characters that are being looked after by somebody, with Ed Harris taking that role with Eric Stoltz in Codename Emerald, also with Cooper taking that role with Annie in this episode, where he takes her out on the lake in their boat and he's comforting her and they're drawing together based in part on her vulnerability and uh, that's something that I think Jonathan Sanger shows in this that he's quite capable of, of playing with and extending and you also see the same sort of power dynamic at play in a different way where a character is teasing and tormenting another character, their their weaker victim. You see the other Nazi characters doing that with Eric Stoltz in this movie. You see Wyndham Earl doing this with the Ted Raimi heavy metal dude character in a much more comedic over-the-top way in the Twin Peaks episode. There's also a sense of sophisticated camaraderie between some of the officers in uh, whether they be like the German ones or the Ger- or the uh, undercover with the, the two undercover Germans working together. That reminds me of the scene with Cooper and John Justice Wheeler in Twin Peaks where they're sitting by the fire talking about love. So he has a certain way, particularly male companionship. But, you know, I think with some of the Annie scenes as well, which are probably among the better Annie scenes in the series he has this capability of showing a dynamic between two characters where there's some sort of tension or communication at play that comes off really well that's what I noticed in that, just the interpersonal dynamics resonated between the two works the child of Charles and Margaret Lewin you gave your child up for adoption now you want him back no, I never gave my child up for no adoption it's gonna be tough Family is with its white, treated him well. They'll fight this. But how his mother? Well, I'm sure that white woman feels fairly strongly that she is. She's gonna challenge the adoption. And now, the last of the Twin Peaks directors, Stephen Gyllenhaal, like Caleb Dishnell before, who is the father of Zoe and Emily, uh, is the father of well known younger actors, in this case, Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal. So he directed episode 27 of Twin Peaks, the last of the directors to come on right at the tail end of season two just before the show was canceled and this episode is probably most memorable for the little flourishes that he personally brought to it that weren't in the screenplay so like bob's uh, hand coming out in the woods and mirroring these other characters hands shaking throughout the episode the long pull away of annie and coop from annie and cooper in the diner with the syrup spilling and dripping onto the floor and things like that throughout this episode. There's just these little touches that he brought in to make it feel more like a supernatural barrier was being crossed. Ben turning around when he hears the tingling sound and looking behind him and all of that. Now, the film that he directed doesn't have anything supernatural about it uh, at all. It's called Losing Isaiah. That's the film that that we're going to discuss here. And, you know, this is just a good moment to kind of pause and note how different all of these films have been. In a way, although there are commonalities between all the Twin Peaks directors, they tend toward these intimate projects dealing with characters and questions of interpersonal dynamics and and all of that. They're working in all these different genres and styles with different types of actors and just very different modes. So that's fascinating. So Losing Isaiah is a child custody story. It's about a woman who's addicted to crack. She leaves her baby in a trash can, passes out, and then when she remembers, she goes back to grab it, and the baby has been taken away, taken to the hospital. And it's adopted by a uh, white doctor who works there, a woman, Jessica Lang, tying us back to Francis, The other mother, the actual mother of the baby, the birth mother, played by Holly Berry, goes into recovery, comes out, is still tormented by the fact that she thinks she killed her child... And eventually finds out the baby is still alive, is now like two years old, is being raised by this woman with his original name, which is interesting. I'm not sure how, I don't even remember how they, they are able to know the baby's name. I think it might be with the baby in the, in the crib or whatever it was put in with the trash. And so she wants to get the baby back. There's a court case that's filed with Samuel L. Jackson as her lawyer, who has an interesting mix of like dedication to this cause. He believes this serves a larger purpose of reuniting black families that have been separated by the drug war and the carceral state and everything, but also kind of a personal disgust with Halle Berry's character herself, who is actually portrayed pretty sympathetically. You know, the movie is interesting in that I think the screenplay kind of slants a certain way, which is towards sympathy with the Jessica Lane character, but the way it's directed and performed is with a lot of empathy for all of the characters involved, and you do actually, when you're with one character, you identify with them in that moment through that scene. Again, this is... Bringing in characters from the, the the different things we've watched, or actors. I mean, we've, we've talked about Jessica Lange being in Francis in this. David Strathern, of course, the sheriff in Lynch, Bro, and Wise Guy, is the husband of Jessica Lange in this movie. So you've got these two six degrees of separation actors in here. Uh, it's incredible how all this stuff is interconnected. Now, what does this have to do with Twin Peaks? That's you know a good question. Actually, it's funny. Long after watching this and recording the rest of this podcast, getting ready to tie everything up, uh, actually halfway through recording this very segment on Losing Isaiah, I happened to pull up uh, Stephen Gyllenhaal's uh, Wikipedia page, and I saw that he'd directed a movie called A Killing in a Small Town. I stopped everything I was doing. I took an hour and a half. I watched that TV movie and sure enough there are some interesting Twin Peaks connections. Now that said, they don't have much of anything to do with his particular episode. Whereas oddly enough with losing Isaiah, I noticed a few mostly stylistic ticks that did link up to episode 27, the the Jill and Hall episode with all of those uh, distinctive spooky kind of moments, so those weird subjective touches he puts in. So, uh, first of all, there is a thematic element that's consistent, which is a parental dispute over uh, who's going to be, you know, the the parent of a child. In the TV episode, it's to do with Donna and whether or not uh, Ben is really her father, and she's tormented by this question. And Doc Hayward confronts Ben Horn about it and, like, let's do what's best for Donna. Don't just think of yourself here. Don't be selfish, you're hurting other people, but he says, but I want the truth, I want to know the truth. So you have actually a similar kind of dynamic between these two characters in some ways that you do in Losing Isaiah. Obviously, there's a huge difference between this poor single mother out of prison and this town tycoon who owns half the town, both are looking to sort of reclaim their parentage of somebody that uh, someone else has raised. So that's kind of an interesting plot point similarity. Obviously, not due to Stephen Gyllenhaal, I don't think he wrote the script for Losing Isaiah, and he certainly didn't write the script for uh, that Twin Peaks storyline, but still interesting nonetheless. Uh, Actually, his wife wrote the screenplay for Losing Isaiah. Interestingly enough, she also wrote the screenplay for Running on Empty. Really enjoy that movie. That's another one about interesting family dynamics. The similarities that were more striking to me between Losing Isaiah and episode 27 come closer to the end of Losing Isaiah when the boy is taken from Jessica Lang's home and placed with Halle Berry. So he goes to live in like a noisier neighborhood. It's like an inner city project and he's traumatized cuz he's not used to this this life and these surroundings a lot of this is captured through his point of view in particular there's a scene where the boy is lying in bed and you hear this fan whirring and it's his he's looking around trying to Make sense of where he is, what's his home, who's his family. And there's actually a strikingly similar sound design choice and shot in Twin Peaks as Donna's looking through the book at her uh, at at the Haywards and the Horns and trying to figure out who her father is, looking at the birth certificate, and there's a loud fan in the background going like right behind that's like a big element in the scene. Hey, Blackie, where you been? You made my life into a comic book. I'm Matthew Blackheart. My fight started 50 years ago when I was created by Dr. Franken under the direct supervision of none other than Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Yes, sir, it was aces. My job was, and still is, to smash monsters. Mortis' is monsters. And finally, a bonus. We're done with the Twin Peaks directors, but there's a Twin Peaks writer I want to discuss a little more in depth. That's Robert Engels again, the same writer who went off to write for Wise Guy. He has a film, a TV movie from the early 2000s called Matthew Blackheart Monster Smasher. It's a very, very over the top, intensely purposefully campy uh, B movie, just as a, trying to make it itself as absurd as it can get. Where there is this uh, superhero type character who was created to kill monsters, and uh, he's frozen during World War II, and he comes out of freezing in the early 2000s, New York, and is trying to understand the modern world. Very Austin Powers, very Buddy Farrow, to be honest. The the Mark Frost TV show about a detective who's been out of out in hiding for 20 years and now coming back and trying to make it in the in the late 90s turn of the millennium world. So same same kind of dynamic here. It's obviously something that people were very fond of doing at this time for whatever reason that that whole Rip Van Winkle thing. I'm not sure why to be honest. I mean why I mean, why you see it so much more then. Maybe it's just the end of the century, end of the millennium, like that artificial calendar kind of coming to an end. Put people in that in that mode. Or maybe it was just because it was sort of a moment of relative stability compared to 60s, 70s, and 80s in between. Not totally sure, but for whatever reason, it was a kind of a popular, I don't know if you call it a genre, but a mode of storytelling. So, anyways, here it's a it's a character from the '40s trying to understand the modern world. So he's a lost agent like Philip Jeffries. That's the first thing you have there. He's a government agent who's out to get monsters or search the spirit world. In Jeffries' case, transported between worlds. His approach to the creatures he encounters is a little different. Obviously, Jeffries experiences these spirits and tries to communicate it. Uh, the Matthew Blackheart tries to uh smash them. Firewalk with me doesn't have as much uh, historical context as uh Matthew Blackheart does, although there was apparently, you know, at one point some plan to include like I love Lucy and Dwight Eisenhower. If you haven't heard that story, uh basically the Engels had said that there was going to be a flashback or opening sequence maybe around the time that Leland first encounters Bob where their characters were watching I Love Lucy, and then uh, they were watching like the Eisenhower inauguration, and everybody stopped at the ball and went to watch I Love Lucy or something. Hard to figure out how that would have ever fit into the movie, but there were a lot of ideas bounced off the wall. So anyways, "Firewalking" me itself doesn't have much historical context, but uh, other parts of season two that Robert Engels worked on do, uh, including the Wyndham Earl stuff, where he builds this whole background form with Project Blue Book in the 60s and everything like that. And uh, that... Gets that that happened that occurs here as well in in this film, where World War II is kind of the context that this character comes from out of a government programs to fight, you know, apparently Nazis and monsters. Interestingly enough, Kenneth Welsh is in this movie as a mad scientist, he's in Matthew Blackguard, he's like the mentor to the character who also the uh, Jay Barishall, the the it's like a teenager at this time, was later in some of the Judd Apatow projects. Um, I'm not sure what else, but you probably recognize him. He plays a young sidekick to Matthew Blackheart who turns out to be some sort of like reincarnation of Kenneth Welsh. Uh, it's just very bizarre. The character's girlfriend is a waitress in a diner, you know, di- a, a '50s dining car diner. So once again, the diner connection pops up in in one of these films. There's a little exchange where someone asks what's for dessert and they say cherry pie. That's got to be a pretty self-conscious nod there, I think, to Engel's former work. There's a couple interesting things here. One that is totally coincidental and uh, hilariously so in the sense that if this film was an inspiration for season three that would be about as, as funny a thing as I could imagine. But I'll say the other thing first that it follows more from Firewalk With Me. There's a sequence where there's a meeting of the monsters. They're all gathered around a table conferring and kind of planning amongst themselves how they're going to deal with the human world. And of course, that is like a goofy cartoon version of the scene in Firewalk With Me. But the other thing is there's a shot that's like uh, somewhere in South America where there's this like secret lair where the monster Nazis or whatever are hiding from the World War II sequence and the camera just pushes slow into this big rock tower hovering over the water into like the area where uh the you know the their headquarters are exactly like the shot in season 3 it's like a computer animated shot moving into this rock in the midst of the ocean where the supernatural forces are residing so yeah Matthew Blackheart Monster Smasher major influence on Twin Peaks season 3 Thank you for listening if you uh, would like to share any feedback, any questions if you've seen these films, if you have thoughts on them or Twin Peaks in general, please leave a comment. You can do so um, on my site. You can also rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That is the best way to get this promoted and out there. And if you want to support this uh, work even more, you can become a patron at slash lost in the movies, where there's Tons more content like this, just literally hundreds and hundreds of podcast episodes, some of which are like hours and hours long, split into multiple episodes sometimes, if I had a lot to discuss that month. I cover all sorts of topics there, not just film. And uh, you can explore all that in the directories linked below. So thank you for listening. Uh, Stay tuned. Next week we'll be back. Here is a little clip of what's in store then. And I guess I'll tip my hat as to what it is because it's in another language, so you may not be able to pick up on the clues. It's the film High and Low by Akira Kurosawa. This is going to be the last of the Left of the Movies uh, podcast that I share on this feed before that too takes on its own monthly feed in October. しかし、そっちの条件はどう?